0: Welcome to The Generalist, a podcast of Canadian Occupational Therapy Perspectives. I'm your host, Jen Talvin I want to know what you want to hear. Connect with me at thegeneralistpodcast at gmail.com. Today we're talking mindfulness meditation and all things OT with Sarah Good. Sarah lives and works in Ottawa, Ontario as an occupational therapist and mindfulness teacher. Both in her personal and professional life, she uses nature and mindfulness meditation to bring calm and joy to each day, often incorporating a walk into treatment sessions or by leading a meditation. She's been working as an occupational therapist for 18 years and has been practicing mindfulness meditation regularly for about as long. In 2020, she launched a mindfulness program called Deep in Your Practice Mindfulness for Occupational Therapists, which is now in its second offering. Currently, Sarah is at the topic editor for the Women's Health column in Occupational Therapy Now. Sarah also presents to other occupational therapists in the areas of mindfulness, pain management, women's health, and sleep through the Canadian Association of Occupational Therapists. Sarah, good. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Jen. I'm excited to be here. I have so many questions for you, but just for everyone to get orientated to your work, can you tell
1: me a little bit about your current role? Absolutely. So my primary role is I work with adults, I like to say, with invisible health challenges. So yeah. Yeah. thanks. So <laughs> primarily that means, in, in my context, people who are dealing with persistent pain or sleep issues or mood issues. And I find often it's a combination of all three of those. So a lot of my clients are first responders or veterans, younger veterans a lot of post-traumatic stress and that used to be primarily I would be traveling around in people's homes Mm -hmm. and seeing people in their community workplaces that type of thing this year it's transitioned to more telehealth but that's that's my main my main work great and then do you do any
0: I know you've done some trainings on women's health does that is that still a part of your day-to-day
1: Mm-hmm. It is. So I have done some training in the areas of women's health. I was fascinated when I discovered there's OTs working specifically in women's health. I took a course in uh, in pelvic health and then started really reaching out to other OTs who work in the areas of women's health. I've started putting out uh, with the OT Now magazine, the women's health column. So that's been a good way to to learn more about that. And I wouldn't say externally my practice focuses on on women's Health per se, because paramedics and uh, you know veterans are disproportionately male, but the incidence of you know developing chronic pain and issues upon leaving the military hits men and women, and I do see a lot of women in my practice. Okay. So, the interesting thing for me, the learning there in, in women's health is I've gotten much more open about asking people about, about their pelvic health, about their menstrual health, and so forth as part of my typical assessment. And I think it does end up tying in a lot to people's understanding of their sleep issues, of their pain issues, of their mood issues to be able to, to link that stuff together. Oh, so it's a bit different with my male clients. But with my female <laughs> clients, I'm really trying to link this stuff in
0: man I want a copy of your assessment intake form I want to know all the boxes you took that sounds like so holistic and so like full picture I'm definitely gonna bug you about that a little bit later excellent your current kind of focus is that you're doing some mindfulness and some mindful meditation how to use it as a practitioner
1: how to share it with your clients absolutely so I actually been practicing mindfulness for about 20 years so about um before I became an OT. And then my first job as an occupational therapist, So I've been an an OT since 2002, just to have some context there. My first job was in palliative care. And I certainly found that I needed to build up my own resilience Mm -hmm. and my own ability to practice compassion rather than get kind of flooded with in, in empathy. And we could talk more about compassion and empathy and a bit later. I'll stick with the mindfulness for the moment though. So for me, it became something that as I did my first job, I realized I really needed some, some help to stay present, to be with my clients and to manage my own energy and stress. Mm-hmm. So it became something that I started doing on my own during lunch when I worked in the hospital in palliative care. So it wasn't at the beginning at all about bringing it to my clients so much as about a tool that I was using myself Right. And then over time, more research started coming out in the area of mindfulness and the impact it can have on a whole variety of of aspects of our lives. And so that gave me a bit more confidence to start bringing it to my clients. And then about six years ago, I trained as a mindfulness meditation teacher at the Ottawa Mindfulness Clinic. And that's a program called Mindfulness-Based Symptom Management. So it's an eight-week program based in mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. I've been teaching there for really since I finished that program. Mm -hmm. And I teach, they have a variety of courses, but the course that I teach is the course for people with persistent pain or chronic health issues. So that's eight weeks, two hours a week with a lot of home practice. And you know, having all that training and really, you know, when we start teaching it, we learn it a lot more too. Mm -hmm. So that really helped me bring it more into my life and more to my individual clients. So my one-on-one sessions and even people who weren't, you know, wanting to put in as much time and energy as it takes to, you know, to really dive into a, a fuller course. I would bring little, in fact, I do bring little bits of it into appointments, not for everybody. It's, it's one of the many tools that I'm using, but it's, it's something that, you know, when we realize that mindfulness meditation isn't just sitting and meditating. It's a whole variety of informal practices that we can do in our day. It's something that I think a lot of my clients have benefited from.
0: You frame mindful meditation as an occupation and you frame it as a tool. Can we deep dive into that? When is it occupation? When is it tool? Does the difference matter?
1: Yeah, I think of it as two different things. There's well, I guess I got a variety of ways of looking at it, but one of them is, mindfulness can be an occupation. Okay. Before you and I started talking this afternoon, I was doing a half-hour meditation. That was my occupation before this interview. Right? And like I set aside supportive, like self-care Exactly. Right. the self-care category, <laughs> the rest and the rest category. So that would be, I would say, a self-maintenance activity that I do. It's an occupation. Then mindfulness can also be a lens through which we can see other occupations. So it's not something that I manage to see all my occupations through. But right now, as I'm doing this interview with you, I'm just focused on you, right? I My mind's not moving off in all different directions of what I need to do later today. So that would be, and so the same could be said as if I'm out for a walk in the forest, sometimes I'm using it really as a mindful practice. I'm really just in the forest. I'm noticing what's in the forest. Sometimes I'm using it as a time to really uh, problem solve something or clear my mind of, you know, I might be, there's something that I'm, trying to come up with. And I might actually be using my walk in the forest, not to be a mindfulness practice in the forest, but as a chance to, to actually think through some stuff. Or I might be using it as a social outing and chit-chatting with a friend the whole time, right? There's all kinds of ways, but certainly I could use a walk in the forest as a mindful activity
0: that's a beautiful example. Okay. So you have it as an occupation. If you're sitting, you know, I meditate from eight to eight 30 in the mornings on Wednesdays, because that is something I need for myself. And that's something I'm going to plan to do. And then you can also use it in anything. Like I do anything. mindful moments when I wash my hands, I try not to do beautiful. any do lists or ne- next. And during a pandemic, you wash your hands a lot. So this you is really serving me. <laughs> that's me using mindfulness as a tool in other occupations.
1: As a lens. Okay. As a lens, yeah. And I may be using that's that interchangeably. So yeah, as yeah, a lens, you're washing great. your hands, but you're doing it mindfully. So the mm. the occupation itself is not mindfulness at that moment. It's washing your hands, but you're looking at it mindfully.
0: And so, that's how I'm building my resilience is yeah. that I'm checking mm-hmm. in. Okay. I love that because it's like some clients, that's what they want. And like for myself, sometimes I'm like, yeah, I really need 20 minutes to do this. But sometimes that's... I'm not there. It's too big of a jump. So using just that tool, you can kind of bring those pieces in. I feel like I've, I've got this down a little bit. <laughs>
1: no, for me, and I don't think I'm alone in this, the act of having a formal meditation, it's like going to the gym or working out so that you can be fit for your life, right? Yeah. So it's that formal meditation can help me to be able to go more quickly into an informal practice, to be able to, to bring a mindful lens to a client appointment or a walk in the woods or washing my hands. So that practice of the formal meditation is not just about the formal meditation. It's also about building that mindfulness muscle, for lack of a better word, that I can apply to the rest of my life. Oh, I love that and I feel like I love connecting it to the exercise thing like
0: yeah you take the stairs during the day to get your extra steps but that doesn't mean you're not doing your workout and it doesn't mean you're not doing your exercise program to help you do those stairs and not be sweaty in your work clothes. This is great. This is good stuff.
1: I'm and you like really... go to the gym or go for a run or something so that you can be in good enough shape to get down on the floor and play with kids as part of your work day or as part of being a parent right. You know it's not just the run it's a about day. you want to be in good shape so you can do everything else you need to do in your life.
0: Yeah. And this is one of those ways yeah. to stay in shape. So yeah. Keep your brain, your heart, your body in shape. So you're not only teaching people how to meditate, you're teaching them how to integrate
1: it into their lives. Mm-hmm. How do you set that up? Well, that's where I think some some form of formal meditation is a helpful tool into this. Okay. When I'm teaching a course, and I should say I also do teach a course for occupational therapists, and they're a great audience and learn really quickly. So I teach an eight-week course for occupational therapists based on, on a lot of the same curriculum that I use for people with persistent pain, but we take the learning and we apply it to our clients throughout the eight weeks as well. So in the first week, there's a formal meditation that I'm inviting people to do every day, but then there's also the invitation to pick something like washing your hands and put that into your day every day. And a couple other informal practices that I ask people to track, to really commit to doing those every day for a week. And then the next week, there's different things. So having that accountability of being part of a group, I think is helpful. And having it formalized as this is the practice to do this week, and then we'll build on it next week and we'll add this in. So I love that that. with my individual people too. I feel like that is so good because it's like, hey, we're learning
0: this, but this is how you... Or putting it into your day. It's just approachable. I feel like if you've had a negative experience or hadn't tried it long enough to kind of get the benefits that it's hard to reset. But I really like that combination of a formal plus
1: these add-ons. And I will say that when I'm t- teaching it, these are people who have agreed to try mindfulness, people who've signed up either as OTs or as people with persistent pain. There's an, a definitive change around week four in most, not for every individual, but for- As the group on the whole, you know, goes from, oh my gosh, how am I going to fit this into my day? And well, is this really going to work? And well, my pain is extremely high. I don't think it's going to help me or my caseload's really full or whatever else. And then by week four, there's this switch where people start to see it's not just taking time from them, but it's actually giving them
0: some time. What do you mean by giving them some time? How is meditation related to rest?
1: Right. So rest is, I think the situation where we're not occupying our bodies and our minds with all kinds of other things. And there's a small list of things that fill in as rest. I mean, certainly sleep, taking a nap, lying there with our, just lying somewhere, staring out a window, listening to instrumental music, meditation. A lot of other things are more recreation in my mind, right? There, okay. if we're um, watching television or reading a novel, I mean, that may be, we may feel a bit more rested afterwards, but it's not a, the, it's not a, the occupation of rest, right? Okay. Whereas when we're practicing mindfulness meditation, we're not, and I'm talking about the more formal mindfulness meditation, we're not bringing other stimulus in. We're not trying to do a lot, even if it's a movement, a gentle movement meditation. It's about really bringing, being present in, in where we are right now. So I don't think it's restful necessarily when people start. So that's an important one too. So I always tell people that I'm going to introduce you to this new practice, it may not be easy at the beginning. It's certainly not going to be relaxing if you're experiencing pain or stress.
0: (laughs) No, you're being more aware of it, right? Yeah, exactly.
1: And I think a lot of people get kind of that attitude of, well, I've tried mindfulness, but it didn't work. If they think the outcome should be that after 15 minutes or 20 minutes, they're going to feel completely rested or relaxed or bliss or something like this wherein you're bringing awareness to what is. And if awareness to I am really exhausted or I am in pain or I'm overwhelmed, that's what you got. But then you get some insight from that and hopefully you can make some changes and that's what as OTs I think we can bring a lot to is helping people with those insights.
0: When you're working in any condition that you're trying to shut down all these sensations from your body, like depression, you aren't getting them, you know, all those like anxiety and pain pieces. You don't want to, you want to turn off that pain signal as much as you can. So I guess, yeah, when you're starting that awareness piece, no wonder it's so hard and it takes four weeks because you have to get through that thick wall of, oh crap, this is fully what I'm experiencing.
1: And a lot of people start mindfulness with an app by themselves without a lot of guidance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's great that there's a lot of meditations available easily and freely. Yeah, that's a good thing. But especially if people are dealing with other health issues or overwhelm and they're jiving into it with an app, it's just them dealing with it when they start to say, well, that was terrible. That whole meditation, I was just getting more and more anxious or that meditation really made me notice my pain. They haven't got a group of classmates or a therapist or a mindfulness teacher to say, well, this was really quite unpleasant. And have someone say, (laughs) well, where'd you feel the unpleasantness in your body? You know, what did that tell you? Instead, they think, well, I'm doing it wrong. It didn't work for me. Cross Mm. that off the list. I tried mindfulness. It doesn't work.
0: Yeah. What are your go-tos? You finish the session, you're in your group and Everyone's like, I'm just in way more pain. Thanks a lot, Sarah. How do you generally approach it?
1: So if I'm in the, I think you're talking about the, you know, if I'm in the group group yeah. situation with people yeah. with pain. So at the at the end of a practice, you know, I let there's a couple minutes of silence, people, you know, repositioning themselves, and then I'll say, so what did you notice? And invariably, someone noticed great things, and someone noticed a lot of pain. So with your question there, if yeah, you know, somebody noticed a lot of pain, then I'll ask them. So we'll focus in on it. So where was your pain? Did it change throughout the meditation? Does it feel different than it did yesterday? Is there anything you could do for yourself right now that might help? I think, love any that. words you can say to yourself?
0: Okay. So then it's directed, it's tailored at that actual piece of pain. So when you're in a chronic pain state where it's just everything hurts in the meditation, maybe you do you pinpoint, it is your low back. And then you can get a heat pack or a stretch or whatever your normal tools are. So this Mm -hmm. is just a way, because most people kind of have tools already, but this is a way to actually utilize the tool you need.
1: And sometimes if people are really experiencing pain, you know, a lot, a lot of pain, I will explain to them that when you're doing the meditation, you don't need to stay with the pain the whole time. You can respect your limits. And usually people can find somewhere in their body where they have no pain today. Earlobes are a common one. Some people it's, you know, the baby toe, but wow. even somebody who says I'm hurting everywhere, tip of the nose, earlobes, like, is there, can we find that spot somewhere that's oh, actually what not a hurting? Reframe.
0: Yeah. And they can escape for their 15 minutes of pain without
1: turning anything else down. Yeah. Or go back and forth to it. Like take a break, go to the earlobes. And then when you feel ready, come back to noticing the breathing or whatever else, the focus of the meditation is come back to wherever we are in the body scan. And then if you need a break again, go back to those earlobes. And you don't need to stay in the pain. Find,
0: yeah. It's a graded experience in meditation. I don't know why I'm seeing it as something other than an occupation. When it's an occupation, we can scale it, we can grade it, we can do all these things. But I love hearing those little tips and tricks of getting into the earlobes. That makes total sense.
1: And I I work a lot with with PTSD as well. So yeah. when I'm doing meditations with them, I would not start with a long meditation, but start with something that I would call a grounding exercise. And we would often experiment with a lot of different grounding exercises till they find something that can can bring their nervous system down so that they've got some way that if things start to go up during a meditation, they know some, some tool that they can use to bring the nervous system, to activate the parasympathetic nervous system, the calming nervous system. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we work on that first Mm -hmm. as a strategy and then remembering that they don't need to stay in the part that's uncomfortable, that graded experience.
0: Okay. I think when we hear meditation, we see it in research all the time. Do you think we need extra training? Do you think we need tailored? I mean, you're offering an amazing course that I think anyone interested is going to probably jump on because us OTs are generally folks who want more information rather than less. Do you think you need training in meditation before you can include it into your practice? Or do you think there's small bits and pieces you can incorporate just Hmm. with our general training?
1: Yeah. So I think we, we, with our general training, there's certainly bits and pieces, but I think that it's important before we're bringing it in as something to share with our clients that we have some experience with it ourselves. So it's like, if you're going to learn swimming and the swimming instructors never actually swam, but knows the theories of buoyancies and knows, you know, has watched a lot of videos on how techniques work and has gone to university to learn about biomechanics of swimming, but they've never actually gotten in the pool or the lake, right? right. Not, so, not so great. You, so I do recommend that that occupational therapist, if they want to be bringing this to their clients, they do try to build some practice themselves to try out, to have some understanding. And I do notice in the course, you know, I, I have very clear practices that I'm giving OTs each week. And OTs, especially at the beginning of the course, say, wow, I hadn't realized how you know, this is more challenging than I thought. I've been asking my clients to do this for a long time, and I hadn't realized, you know, how, how hard it, feels it is. or how hard it is to find the time or how hard. So, you know, practicing this, I think, I think brings a lot. Right. And then I would say that there's a spectrum. So, using mindfulness as an OT in my mind, there's there's really three. There's it's a spectrum, but we'll go with three categories. and three you know, points. There's in a lot room. of in a in lot of wiggle room. in this. But the first <laughs> one is using mindfulness myself. So when I described my the beginning of when I got mindfulness into my own life, it was really to for my own self-maintenance. That's level one is a practicing therapist. So having that practice yourself. And there's research that even we don't tell our clients anything about mindfulness. We don't mention it. We don't refer them to a course. We don't recommend a book. Nothing. There is better outcomes for our clients when we are practicing mindfulness. Yes, I
0: agree with that. 100%.
1: Hundred percent. So, you know we're when you're right
0: regulated, they're more regulated. Just because we're heart math and we're doing the we're doing the work for them. Totally. So, so
1: right away, if we're practicing, there's benefits to our family. Even if they don't want to practice, there's benefits to our clients. Even if they, I've never heard of mindfulness. All right. right. So that's step one. Then the next step is where we're. Mindfulness informed therapy. So that might be where we're letting our clients know, you know, I've tried mindfulness. Some of my clients have tried mindfulness. I hear there's this course at this clinic nearby, or there's this book, or that type of thing. We're, we're bringing it to our clients. Maybe let's try a meditation during a session. Maybe our client's taking a course and we're helping them translate that into their occupations because are pretty high if they're taking a course it's not taught by an OT unfortunately okay. so we might be the people who are saying okay you're taking this course that's taught by a psychologist and let's actually see how we can translate that and apply it to your occupations right so that OT. would be the
0: right. formal training and then we would do all the additional info yeah exactly training. and that's yes. comfortable because yeah I don't know exactly what we you're definitely learning, have training I to know do, that. do
1: that that exactly great. Love yeah. It. So okay. we got so step one, the practicing therapist. Mm-hmm. Step two, mindfulness informed therapy. And then step three would be mindfulness based therapy. And so mindfulness based therapy, I think you do need some extra you need some mm-hmm. extra training on. So that's when you're really using mindfulness as a as a main intervention. Um, and maybe people t- might seek you out for that. Exactly. So right. you might be a mindfulness teacher as well. Or, you know, using it quite explicitly in your practice and in, really being the person that your clients are turning to in order to develop their own practice. Okay. And then you're in charge of the formal and the informal kind of. Yeah, exactly. Okay, exactly. So I think that OTs as self-directed learners can certainly become, you know, can start their own practice if they would like to do it in community and so forth. And with guidance, that's why I That's why I run a course. But we have the training to start doing that ourselves. And then the next one, that's also where my course really comes in, is how can you bring this to your clients? Mm -hmm. So that's the mindfulness-informed therapy, really bringing it to your clients. And certainly, as therapists, we can go and do evidence reviews and look at ways to bring it in. I've kind of done that and given it to therapists so they can jump right in and start using it more quickly, right? And get some of that experiential knowledge as well.
0: For more on Sarah, Mindfulness, and her current offerings and blog, head to www.sarahgoodot.ca. Sarah's also started a Facebook group called Mindful OTs. What an awesome community to join. If you want to connect with her directly, there'll be a link to her group and her website in the show notes. What might be some signs that as an OT you're ready to, or you should be maybe looking into some mindfulness practice? Hmm, It's a good question.
1: I mean, for, I think each of us is gonna have different reasons and I don't think there needs to be, this isn't, it doesn't need to be an intervention, right? This is an occupation. So it's like, what are the signs that you need to exercise? or You need to eat well. I think we all need some <laughs> level of that. And I think we all need some contemplative activity. Mm-hmm. so you've had Rachel Tybalt on here recently wow. talked about the importance of having I think 30 minutes a day of a contemplative blew my mind activity right yeah for me that's mindfulness other people you know might have might have other things that are working for them in that in that area but I mean I very much practice those five c's as part of my life yeah. but it's so what's the sign that you're not getting enough of all those five C's? It's probably feeling exhausted by life and mm. you know, feeling like you're not thriving, not happy. Not that we're all happy all the time, but feeling a certain contentment. And I think as well, if, if you're feeling like your role as an OT is leading towards burning you out or stressing you out, it's time to really go back to those those self-maintenance activities and contemplative activity and centering activity can come Resilient from mindfulness. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. Great, great answer. Thank you. <laughs> You're
0: welcome. Some people use meditation for sleep, and some people use meditation for rest. Can you help me tease out the different roles of meditation around rest and sleep?
1: Yes. So Oftentimes in our day, if we're going nonstop all day, the first time that we have nothing coming at us is when our heads hit the pillow, and then our brains can Wait, start. Wait, to- it doesn't have to be that way. No, absolutely <laughs> okay, not. Okay, <laughs> I thought that's what pillows were for—they <laughs> hold your. Thoughts, well, you can use your right? pillow as often as you want, but if you've been going since you know early in the morning <laughs> until late at night without ever having a time where you're not having to take in information or explicitly you know, put out information, then when our heads hit the pillow, our minds tend to get a lot of that um, cognitive popcorn that just, oh, that's a that's great everywhere. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> really hard to fall asleep if you've got the cognitive popcorn. Um, it's also over the course, and I'll you know answer that question, I admit, but the kind of the other thing to think about is that over the course of our day, so our sympathetic nervous system is our upregulating nervous system, and it's normal for it to up upregulate as soon as we're waking up in the morning. That's got to happen. That upregulation is what gets us to go from asleep to awake. And throughout the day, in modern society, we have a whole lot of upregulation times. We have less times when the parasympathetic nervous system gets activated. And I think sometimes we kind of shut down the idea of rest and letting the parasympathetic nervous system be active all day, and then we hit the pillow and By then, the parasympathetic nervous system's like given up, right? I stopped (laughs) trying. Yeah, I stopped trying at lunch. Like that was my last. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So giving ourselves that opportunity at some other point in the day to activate the parasympathetic nervous system, to not have stimulus coming in and stimulus going out can give us that touch point in the day where we're not going quite as long of just getting more and more and more upregulated throughout the day. So for me, having uh, a formal meditation practice in the middle of the day is key. It really does help me. It helps me stay present through the rest of the day, but it probably also does help me fall asleep more quickly at night if I've had the meditation in the middle of the day.
0: Oh, so when people are Googling meditation for sleep, we probably missed our like our window could have been at lunchtime and we could have Absolutely. done meditation then. We don't have to meditate for that 20 minutes and then transition to bed.
1: No. That's not a time that I meditate, really. I just fall asleep when I try to do that. <laughs> yeah. And now some people do fall asleep super well in meditations. And if you're having sleep trouble, that's not a problem. The first meditation that I recommend the first week, people often fall asleep to it, especially if they are sleep deprived. And I'll say, well, that's fine. If you're using it at bedtime and you're falling asleep, no problem. But I want you to practice it another time a day too then because you're not actually gaining the insights and increasing your awareness of yourself if you're falling asleep five minutes into a 30-minute meditation. Right? Right. But you're falling asleep, so but we use think that is a sleep tool. Don't want to mess with it, <laughs> but let's use it some other time. I don't think meditation needs to happen at bedtime in order to help with sleep. I think any time in the day can help with sleep. A lot of people like to do it first thing in the morning, and it can sort of um, be less jarring start to the day. And once it's a less jarring start to the day, it, it does ease our relationship between waking and sleeping. And right. that can be helpful too to, to manage that.
0: And maybe you have a little more compassion for yourself if you did your meditation in that morning and you're like, yeah, I had to do the earlobes like three times today. Maybe <laughs> I changed my expectations of what, what my plan was. And you know, we order Literally. in dinner. And I know that's happening now. I don't have to feel guilty about it halfway through my day. Thinking, oh, there's no way I'm going to be able to make that casserole tonight. It's already a plan. And yeah, it, excellent example. It.
1: Okay, yeah, cool. It sets people. Often, people say that they're really well set up for the day if they meditate in the morning. Mm-hmm. And you know, so I think it's more about finding a time that works for you. For me, meditating in the morning. I mean, that's I got kids. We we're eating breakfast, we're getting people ready for school. Like it's just not going to happen. And then I'm no, ready waking to up see at clients. five. To speak, not, in no. your half-hour. I like I get my sleep. I'm not waking up early today. I'm not waking up before my kids. That's not possible. So <laughs> <laughs> know your limits. Oh yeah, that's part of it. So for me, mid, midday works. I have a private practice. I have the ability to choose not to schedule a client for half an hour time that I can schedule in meditation, right? Other people, it might be the evening and then making some variations. If you say, well, I'm going to do it after dinner, but then I fall asleep after dinner. That's not going to help you with sleep at night. So you better either move it closer to bedtime or move it further from bedtime because you don't want to fall asleep at 6 p.m. No. and waking back up, and then you can't fall asleep at
0: 11 or something like that. right? Okay, I can only imagine if you're working with shift workers or frontline workers that their sleep cycles are all over the place. Mm-hmm. Meditation a good tool for them? If you find it's improved their kind of sleep? training?
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes, I think it is a very good tool. And I think that especially because it's a way that a person can get rest at a time, if you only have half an hour, you don't have enough time to get sleep between whatever's going on. Often by the time I'm personally working with people, they are retired from the military and say young retired, they're people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, who are now no longer in active service, or they're paramedics who are off work, Often disordered sleep is what got them to the point of having uh, mood issues and post-traumatic stress. So I would say most of my clients have sleep difficulties. And so it's definitely useful. I'll use a combination of different, different meditations. But sometimes we'll have something that's at bedtime, particularly I'll teach them sleep, breath or something. I like to have something that they can do at bedtime that doesn't require any audio. I don't want people bringing their phones into their bedrooms. So we're often, you know, I'll teach them some meditations they can do without having to listen to a recording of me talking. But also, I think that's particularly important for the pre-sleep ones. Right.
0: Yeah. Good idea. Because it doesn't matter even if it's for the quick second to press play, you're still looking at your phone and you're still connected to outside stimulus.
1: And it's still there and makes it more tempting when they wake up at three in the morning. If the phone's right on the bedside table, (laughs) they're more likely to grab it than if the phone's in the kitchen. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when
0: we're just waking and we don't have all of our full willpower to know what's good for us. Yeah. Yeah. So you talked about doing meditation and it affecting your clients. Do you know what the window is for that? Have you noticed in your personal work or in your in your own practice, like as long as you're meditating on a semi-regular basis, do you find that it's helping? Or is it like I know that a client with some high anxiety is coming in and I'm going to feed on that. I need to meditate beforehand. Like, is there some sort of timing related to it? Or do you find just when your up system and your down system are better friends, it's just a better presence?
1: Mm-hmm. I think my up system and my down system are better friends when I meditate every day, but <laughs> I know one of my teachers <laughs> said to me, you should meditate for half an hour every day, unless you're really busy, and then you should meditate for 60 minutes a day. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so, you know, it's an important Ooh. one to keep in mind that for me, that's that's helpful. Now, mm-hmm. it, those numbers, take those with a grain of salt, because not, you know, if you have, uh, this is this is an important part of my own self-care, but if it's not something you've been doing for ages, that those numbers may sound ridiculous, and I do sometimes, when I'm introducing this idea to people, help them find ways they can find the time, like half an hour less on Netflix, or taking the, the the feed out from Facebook, so you're just seeing your own profile, or whatever you search for, rather than the feed that comes Scrolling. in. Scrolling. Scrolling, yeah. yeah. So, you know, there's ways that we can try to find that time, but nonetheless, it can still feel like, yeah, a lot of time. I also do start a lot of my client appointments with a meditation, right? right. That's pretty normal. Not a long one, but but we start with something, and it helps. Generally, the clients have been aware oh, of doing whatever they're doing, dealing with other appointments, dealing with household things, whatever else is on their day, and it allows us both to be settled and grounded into the appointment. And I find there's a huge difference if I ask a client, "So, what's you know, what do you want to tell me about this week? What's gone on this week?" Before we do the grounding exercise or meditation, and afterwards, and afterwards, people seem to be able to think a bit more okay, well, here's the big issue versus, well, there's this, and there's this, and there's this, you know, it's, it, it does settle us, right? I'm also often doing exposure with people, even mm. online, we're doing, you know, the telehealth, I'm I'm still doing exposure therapy with people. So starting with a, a grounding exercise, so that they, any anxiety that they've had about coming to the appointment, because they we're going to be looking at something today that might be triggering for them, we can at least bring the nervous system a little bit more into calm before we're mm. opening that up. Right. And it helps me too. It helps me be present and not be thinking of, okay, what was my plan for this appointment? What's going on? Just to settle in. And then we get back to.
0: And action. as humans, we want to know what's happening, right? So if I know every time I go to my appointment with you, we start with the meditation and then we figure out what we're doing. Like that's really lovely. Mm-hmm. Cause even though if I know our treatment plan or I know like, Hey, generally this is what I talked to Sarah about, but like having that routine, it's kind of nice to, to get into it. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. I know exactly what the first five minutes is going to look like. Hey generalists. If you want more OT conversations, check out otpodcast.com for a listing of occupational therapy podcasts from around the world. That's otpodcasts.com. Earlier we were talking about compassion and empathy, and I want to know your take on that as a therapist, like the compassion, empathy, sympathy kind of triad, providing services for somebody else, and then also just your thoughts on how we do that for ourselves.
1: Yeah. So I guess to start, I'll give a couple of kind of how I've worked the definitions in my own mind, and I'm sure there's more... More complete scientific definitions of these, but I, in my mind, consider sympathy as I see your pain, Mm -hmm. empathy as I see your pain and I feel your pain, and compassion is I see your pain, I feel your pain, I can be with you even during this pain. So where that comes into kind of action is if we're in empathy. So I see your pain. I feel your pain. I actually physically feel your pain, right? And because I'm really feeling your pain, I'm all for action. What can I do to help you? How can I fix this? But I'm doing it not consciously, but primarily because I need to end my own pain, right? Oh, you're fixing. I am uncomfortable. So I need to do something, so if you can think of a situation where someone's kind of needed to do something, like, I just need to fix something, I just need to solve this, right? They're, they're in a, they're most likely in an, in an empathy response, okay? They are feeling that their pain centers in their brain are activated. So they're needed to do something to help, to help alleviate the situation for you so that they can calm their own nervous system, right? right. And I think a lot of us, I'm certainly, that's where I naturally go to is empathy. That's my natural So I'm somebody who's, you know, feels other people's pain and wants to jump in and do something about it. When I started working as an OT, it's probably been one of the biggest lessons I've learned as an OT. And there I was in palliative care with 100 patients, there was a lot of pain, right? And, and wanting to go in and, you know, do things And I looked at the other most of my colleagues were nurses. So, you know, there was nurses who were just running ragged and exhausted. And by the end of the week, I was exhausted. There we were trying to you know, fix people's issues and make people feel better all the time. It's it's not sustainable. Mm-hmm. So that actually leads to what's called compassion fatigue, but isn't actually compassion fatigue. It's actually empathy fatigue. Oh, yeah, it totally then is. We have compassion. So compassion is renewable. So that's where I can see your pain. And I can be with you in this pain so if you just need me to sit here, I can just sit here. I'm not going to need to scramble around and do something. If you, if there's something that I can do to help you, it's primarily motivated by what I can do to help you versus what I need to do to manage my own symptoms. Mm-hmm. Right? right? So empathy one would be more of, I know in our family, we kind of joke sometimes, I'm cold put on a sweater, right? Like, <laughs> 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 yep, I see you in a tank top and I'm cold. So please here, take this, take this sweater, right? Yes even though you might not be cold, you're a different person, you're doing okay. But the compassion, we can be, take that your perspective might be different. What you need might be different than what I would need in your situation. Right. So can I be with you without the need to change it? So then I've suddenly got all this energy so I can do some nice things for you that you actually need, that you want. That's what you, versus what I would want if I was in your situation.
0: Right, and it might not be immediate relief for you. Right, but I'm not in
1: need of relief now. No, because you've shaped it as compassion. As I'm in compassion, yeah. Sure. Compassion actually gives us energy. And when we're in healthcare and we're in an empathy response all the time, that's what lead one of the things that can lead to, to burnout and to this, yeah. quote-unquote, compassion fatigue, actually empathy fatigue. Whereas when we're in compassion, then it becomes a practice of connecting with people, which can actually, you know, build me up because I'm connecting with you and I'm helping you. Helping is probably not the word I would actually like to use here, but I'm serving. supporting you. Or supporting, sure. yes, yeah. Yeah. So I'm supporting you in a time that you need some support because I'm human and you're human, right? Mm-hmm. Not because I'm needing to deal with my own symptoms. So that's kind of the, how I would see the difference there. And that's
0: really interesting from like a power dynamics situation. I really like the way you summarize those terms because it's almost feeling like when you're coming in at that empathy stage, the expert light goes off and Mm -hmm. these are the tools you need right now, do them. Mm -hmm. Whereas as soon as we get into the compassion, it's more of that collaboration and that shared power, which is I've never thought about those things in that relation. Yeah,
1: that's well said. When I'm in a compassion response, there's space for us to do client-centered care rather than me be the expert, right? It can be about what you need. So how's this tie kind to of mindfulness might fit? Because that ties into how we are as therapists. I think in order for me to know if I'm in an empathy response <laughs> or a compassion response, I need some mindfulness. I need to yeah. be aware of what I'm feeling. What are my sensations right now? What are my What are my emotions? And what's driving me to need to do something for you right now, or what's driving me to be able to be with you, certainly I have some a number of practices that are self compassion practices or actually just compassion practices as well that for example, you know if you're with somebody who's in a lot of pain and this takes you know a breath or two, and if I'm starting to feel kind of this empathy response, I'm starting to feel overwhelmed with this oh, you know this is this person's in pain i and I don't just mean physical pain, right? Emotional pain, yes. but, you know, something. So there's a, a practice where we can imagine breathing in that person's pain, and breathing out something positive we want to send to them. Mm. So it can be understanding if it's Ooh. a client. It can be love if it's a family member, right? So you know, you lead a, breathe out, and nobody else is going to know you're doing this. But it's a a way to that I find to calm myself down enough that then. I move to compassion. So I'm imagining I'm breathing in whatever distress or pain I see in you and I'm breathing out what I'm actually wanting to send. And it's you.
0: transformed. You're not holding on to their pain. Exactly. It's coming in and you're using your skills to get it out. I like that. Yeah. Instead of just sitting with it and it just building around you. Absolutely.
1: <laughs> and after two or three breaths I start to feel that mm-hmm. love or caring or whatever it is I'm Kind of breathing out, and
0: your body is sending their body all these signals of "Hey, we're good. Keep going. Like we're fine. Okay."
1: Because then suddenly I'm a person who's down regulating in the room rather than up regulating. In re- I mean, if somebody's in pain, they're up regulated. So I think our role as OTs then is not to be up regulating ourselves more, which is then just adding to the up regulation in the room. Mindfulness for me is a very helpful tool to help me down regulate and hopefully bring the overall down regulation of the room a little more calm right right okay is there any like
0: situation or group of clients or diagnosis or anything along those lines where you think meditation or mindfulness is a contraindication or maybe not a good idea
1: i think that for some people it's better to be starting with informal practices than formal practices. I think not everyone is going to be comfortable being asked to close their eyes. So I never tell people they must close their Mm -hmm. eyes, right? That's something that's That's not for everyone. Some people are going to do better with movement. And that's our job as therapists to be able to understand that. Certainly in my course, I dive into a bit more people who've been through trauma. And I've got some pretty specific criteria that I use for using mindfulness with people with trauma. I do it though. I've taught a whole course for people with operational stress injuries. That's certainly. People with post-traumatic stress, for sure, I use it, but I've got some guidelines. So I think that's something that educate yourself and know your know your limits as a therapist as to whether you're going beyond beyond your skill set. Okay, perfect. I like that. This seems like a real
0: cool superpower of yours. Do you have any tips for, I know you're a wonderful therapist who gives a plethora of options for people and you're not using just a mindfulness, we need mindfulness. Great. No. How, how do you navigate that? Because you have so much wisdom in this area. And I'm sure there's some people that you're like, oh, if you could only do this, this would change your life. H- how do you present those things? And how do you stay open to what the person needs and not what you can provide?
1: So I think I'm not putting mindfulness out there as this is our intervention, unless somebody has signed up for a course on mindfulness, right? Which is different. Right. If they've, or they and their psychologist or they and their family doctor have made a decision to come to my course on mindfulness... Then that's what we're diving into. Yeah. If it's individuals, though, I'm not pushing the mindfulness at them so much as we start with very simple grounding exercises, often as the first two minutes or five minutes of our appointment. And then I'm not asking them to practice this on their own between appointments because just that can feel daunting. Mm. I've got a few informal practices that I don't even need to label mindfulness like you mentioned earlier, bringing attention to washing hands. So I might ask them to just, when they're washing their hands, focus in on the sensations of washing their hands this week. And see if they're up for that. And if they don't remember, that's okay. I do a lot in my appointments. So it's not not just mindfulness, but I, I really like at the end of appointments for clients to feel like they're on top of things at the end. If they say, oh, I'm just so overwhelmed I haven't even managed to do the dishes this week. We'll go to the kitchen and do the dishes for 10 minutes, right, like let's at least, well, may not finish a whole week's worth of dishes, but at least get a sink load or two of dishes through. So at the end of the appointment, they're not left with, okay, I gotta do all those dishes before I see Sarah again next week. They're left with, I've already started doing the dishes. And so as they're starting to do the dishes, I might incorporate that, okay, do you think you could just rather worry about all the dishes, do you think you could just bring your mind to the sensations involved in washing these dishes? Yes.
0: You're doing it together. Yeah. And that's what people need when you're in pain. When you can't do that, it's not having another tool. It's doing it together.
1: Very much, whether it's mindfulness or it's exercise or it's home organization or it's following up on things, we are doing those in the appointments I have with clients. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, I really very cognizant that people who who are off work on medical leave or are you know retired with PTSD they have a lot on their plate so I'm not trying to leave them with you got to do this 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 I spent a lot of time walking with people on appointments because mm-hmm. then I'd love it if they could walk for an hour every day but that's not going to happen right now so at least if they can walk for 45 minutes during our appointment once a week we're good. we're getting somewhere and yeah. the same can hold to, if I think mindfulness is a great thing with them they can do a five-minute rounding exercise with me and bring a bit more attention to those dishes we're washing as part of the appointment. That's that's where we're going. I think people who take the course, there's a much, much faster transformation. There's an accountability, not just to me, but to the other people taking the course. There's a bit of a, you know, a group mentality of, okay, this is what we're doing this week and people yeah. do it. So people who want to go through that transformation and are really convinced that mindfulness is the thing that they want to put time and attention in mm-hmm. to make changes, then I would say that's, that's where change happens faster in that regard.
0: Yeah. But they're just at that readiness state. So that totally exactly. and then yeah. you're just an OT on a regular day and you happen to have this amazing skill set. Maybe you had like a group course, you know, in the morning and then you have a one on one in the in the afternoon. Do you have any tips and tricks to switching your brain from meditation teacher back
1: to whole life, including little bits and pieces? Well, I think it still goes back to I I'm practicing on that spectrum we talked about mm-hmm. earlier, right? And that's that's an important thing to remember too, is even if you have a client who absolutely wants nothing to do with any of these things is if I'm practicing meditation myself, there's already a positive impact on them. So you just right? slide your slider back to level one. That's what I'm doing <laughs> level one. So same with if I'm teaching a course in the morning, so I got my group mindfulness based symptom management in the morning, or I'm teaching my group of OTs in the morning, they're all convinced this is great and we're all doing that. <laughs> so then I'm mindfulness-based mindfulness occupational therapies oh. when I'm providing there, right? And so, yeah, I, I, then I'm sliding it to different levels with different people. So it might just be that I'm a practicing therapist and we are um, not talking about mindfulness at all. That's okay. Mm. It's because I'm practicing mindfulness, everyone's on that spectrum somewhere. They don't need to consent to, to this because it's just something I'm doing. Myself, it's that therapeutic rapport, or therapeutic alliance. exactly. The therapeutic use of self <laughs> is part of yeah.
0: <laughs> totally, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I like having that visual, at least for for me, to be able to like click where you're going. Because I, I, you could use that with any tool. Like, say you are in a course. I know sometimes when people go to courses, they're like, "This is the best tool. This is the best lens. This is the best whatever." And then you try to implement it with all of the people on your caseload, and you're like. That was the worst strategy ever. And I did this once before. Why am I doing this again? But I like that because then you can just change your little Mm. little slider. I mean, Mm -hmm. not all those interventions are going to help somebody just passively, like mindfulness will, but just having it as this is a tool, this is what I'm teaching. I like that a lot. One thing we haven't talked about is we're using the words mindfulness and meditation, I think, pretty loosely. Mm -hmm. Are there specific? And then as an OT, Do we see
1: these occupations differently? Are they different things? Right. So I think meditation is a broader term. I said, well, I'll say two things. First of all, (laughs) mindfulness. Let me define that one. Yeah. How I would define mindfulness is three parts. It's, um, It's having an intention. So what's the, what am I intending to focus on? Attention, where am I really focusing? And attitude, how am I talking to myself when maybe those things aren't quite aligned? Oh, so (laughs) intention, attention, attitude. If I'm intending to focus on my breath, and my mind is on my clients for the afternoon, then can I speak to myself gently and bring my mind back to my breath? Mm -hmm. All Right. So that's the so that's the definition I would say of mindfulness. And then within that, I would say that there's I know we've touched on here the more formal mindfulness practices. So I would call those meditations a mindfulness meditation. If I'm sitting and doing. A breath meditation, an awareness of breath meditation, or I'm lying and doing a body scan, or I'm doing a formal walking meditation. Those would all be mindfulness meditations in my mind. But meditation is a broader term. So there's other types of meditation out there. Right. Mindfulness is certainly um, one that has... uh, can be easily translated, and I use it entirely secularly, so that's important, and it's got a lot more evidence in terms of it's been in healthcare since about the 1970s. It's been used regularly and researched in healthcare, so there's certainly other types of meditations, and there's probably OTs who are using some other types of meditation themselves or in their practice, so there's some overlap, so yeah, we are using it a bit interchangeably, but I'd say if I'm bringing a mindful attitude to washing my hands, that might not be a meditation. That's probably mindfulness practice. If I'm doing an awareness of breath meditation, could also be mindfulness practice, could be meditation. That could be either one.
0: Okay. That makes a lot of sense. All right, Sarah, thanks so much for being on today. I feel like you've really filled my mind. <laughs> Mindful feeling, my mind. Okay. We needed one pun today. Well, let's get into these rapid fire questions. Absolutely. I'm going to ask them out loud and I'm going to try my best to not comment on them, even though I'll probably get really
1: excited. What guides your practice? compassion, I think that's a big part of what guides my practice, and uh, connection. So connection with my clients, connection with nature, connection with myself. Those are probably the two biggest things that guide my practice and helping my, I really strive to help my clients connect with themselves. How do you describe OT or your role? Mm -hmm. So I describe OT as we're people who are interested in everything that occupies your time and we can play a part in the parts of your day or the uh, things that you'd like to be occupying your time or should be occupying your time that aren't working well for you right now. What advice would you give yourself when making a move in your career? Just asking myself whether that particular move or that project or that idea would be something that lights me up, whether it's gonna have impact positive impact on, you know, more more people, whether it's going to work from a family point of view in terms of the timing and the location and so forth. And then I also like to ask myself, you know, where I feel it in my body. So I can feel where I feel a yes in my body and where I feel a no in my body, which Mm. is sort of a meditation that that I practice. And so I'll ask myself the question, you know, is this a is it a yes or is it a a no? Which doesn't mean I necessarily am going with that, but it gives some clue as to whether I'm feeling it as I Yes, or no. How do you take care of you? Well, mindfulness (laughs) (laughs) meditation. That's a big one. I prioritize sleep. I've got a big sleep window I put into my day. Time in nature. My son and I get out cross-country skiing right now four times a week. So we're out in the forest a lot, moving. So that's really good. Spending time with other people in my family. Dancing with my daughter. Reading out loud with my husband. So, yeah. What about this work fills your bucket? Oh, so many things. I, I really love occupational therapy. I've wanted to be an occupational therapist since I kind of learned what it was. And to me, it is, I sometimes in my right, struggle to see the perspective of others, wonder why everyone doesn't want to be an OT. But it seems <laughs> lucky for us, not everyone wants to be an OT. But we get to interact with people, we get to be creative and really be there with people when they're making changes in their lives. And there's so much flexibility. You know, I started this, but I had the first call of a group of OTs going through my program yesterday, and everyone had completely different areas of work. And it's just so exciting to hear them and think, this is an amazing profession. We can work in so many different areas and with every age and stage of people in their lives. There we go. I could probably keep going about that for ages. The love letter to the profession.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much for being on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. All Um, right.
1: You take care. Bye, Jen.
0: Thanks for tuning in. I would love to hear from you if you have any ideas for the show or if you'd like to be a guest. Please email me at thegeneralistpodcast at gmail.com or connect with me through the website at thegeneralist.podbean.com. That's The Generalist with a J. Music in today's episode is by David Hyde.